how should marketers and business people think about these partnerships maybe with people who are already in a position of privilege and power? This just straight up depends if the Nepo babies are any good at what they do. Like <laughs> nobody has problems with Nepo babies who are actually talented at the thing they want to do. People just have issues with Nepo babies who are not actually talented at the thing. everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, the show where we rewatch some of the most innovative and most intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Ariel Boswell, and I'm joined by Leslie Green. Hey, everyone. And John Dick. Hey. Today in the Shark Tank, we have a product that cleans and charges your phone, a slimy delight, and a solution that serves as a breath mint for your clothes. But before we get into all that, we got bills to pay. So as they say, a word from our sponsor. First up in the tank, introducing Slimy Honey. Slimy Honey is coming in from this latest season of Shark Tank. Mark Lynn comes to the sharks asking for $150,000 for 10% equity, which comes out to a $1.5 million valuation. Slimy Honey is a gourmet, next-level slime that looks and smells like your favorite foods. Over 100 different slimes are available online stores, and distribution primarily comes through Mark, his friends, and his mother in their garage to help produce the product. They saw a lot of success as their major selling point was on TikTok, where they amassed a huge following of 900,000 followers. So what do we think about the initial product itself and the name and some of the packaging? I'm super excited about this product. It's an extremely visual, extremely social focused product. It's both the ASMR of it all. It's the visuals of it all. I mean, he has a waffle on top of the slime. How cool is that? I kind of in my head already thought this guy's going to be successful. I can't wait to hear about it. But I don't know, John, you looked like you were kind of shaking your head there. You may not have been as on board with Slimy Honey. This is classic Leslie. Classic Leslie. <laughs> is it? Is it classic Leslie? <laughs> Okay. Growing up, I watched a lot of Nickelodeon and I loved the slime. And then a few years ago, I actually got slimed. And then I had a kid and three times now I have done slime with her. <laughs> Here's what I learned. Okay. I hate slime. Freaking hate slime. I hate playing with slime. And I particularly hate this frou-frou version of slime. You know what rhymes with slime? Waste of time. <laughs> wow. I just wonder how much of that is due to like the parenting aspect of it, right? Because I have two nieces that love slime. It gets everywhere. It's super it. messy. But as a kid, it's like something you're totally into. But once when you become a parent, it seems like everything changes. Every time I try, like it doesn't work. If you dump this crap in it, they're like, oh, like get some sparkles in it or some plastic avocados you put in there, whatever. And it's just like the avocados fall out and the activator is too much activator, too little activator. It's stuck on everything. I just do not like slime. And for that reason, I'm out. Already. <laughs> wow. Yeah. John, can <laughs> I ask, were you a Play-Doh aficionado? Mm. I had a Play-Doh kitchen growing up and I made a lot of good food. I okay, made hot dogs. Let's have some yeah. empathy here. This is like the Gen Z Play-Doh. That's a good way to put it. But it's worse than Play-Doh and Gen Z still has Play-Doh. <laughs> I mean, I hear you. It is messy. I, I can get all of those. I'm really sorry for your experience, John, that you had getting slimed multiple times. But let's just talk about like, do people really want slime that smells like food? My favorite food is like hummus. Mm. Like, I don't want hummus slime up in my kitchen. I don't know if you all follow the same content that I do, but I get a lot of like sound, like ASMR, like crunching of the slime. And I feel like that has really rose to prominence over the last couple of years, particularly on social media. So while I don't necessarily see myself getting super razzed up, 
I do think there's a market there for it. Yeah, there's companies who've built their entire social strategy around ASMR, and it works. Like you think about the components of what makes successful social content. It makes you feel something. It makes you want to share it with someone. And so these really highly capturing colors, visuals. Could you just explain, Leslie, you are a social media expert. You started to talk about what would make something really go viral as a product like this. Could you help explain it to me? Yeah. Ariel, do I follow the same people on social media as you? I don't know. Do you follow Dave Matthews? I can't say I'm a fan. You know? (laughs) Yeah, let's think about it a little bit. First and foremost, visuals. How are you capturing the audience's attention with visuals? So you've got color, the stretching, the up close of it. There's so much opportunity there to really develop a visual that is compelling. You know, short form video is queen. I'm going to call it queen. Short form video is queen right now on all channels. And when you have a highly visual (laughs) consumer product like this, to me, it's almost impossible not to just make these seven to 10 second videos that are like, take a break and relax. And you're just pulling the slime and people want to continue to watch it because you think about, you know, TikTok, Instagram, their whole goal is retaining you to watch the video. I also think something that's very interesting within what makes them successful is their drop culture strategy that is Mm -hmm. something that's like unique, really unique to social. I think it really began kind of in like the streetwear world in terms of the drop marketing. But for anybody who doesn't really understand drops or drop product culture, it's really based off of scarcity and urgency and using e-commerce to let shoppers shop whenever they want and build up this anticipation. And so something that he did was he drops new flavors every single week. And so it builds excitement. So it really just enables a brand to generate hype, nurture loyalty, and keep customers coming back for that. What is the next drop going to be? And he's really in touch with how his audience wants to be marketed to. And so I loved seeing another TikTok success story. It also builds a bit of brand equity. I mean, how often do we go online and say, oh, at 11 o'clock a.m., I need to check my favorite business's Facebook page. Like being able to have those users come back, share some of the content when they do. The TikTok success is really interesting. But when you dive into the numbers too, I think Mark's margins were about what, like 70%. It only cost him 2 to $4 to make it. He sold for 10 to 16 which not sure what the general slime market is price point wise. <laughs> Fairly competitive pricing, I feel like, within the market with an average shipping for 5 to $6. So pretty good like margins and profit overall. John, I'm curious what you think about the pricing. I actually think the price point is pretty good. Now, what's really interesting is in a drop model, you can actually play with variable price points. You know, basically, if this drop starts gaining momentum, you actually could increase your price. You could do a bunch of things like that, which is kind of interesting. I think you could probably charge a little bit more. I thought the same. If I were him, I would just obsess about finding the right price point that moves the highest volume in the shortest time possible to just increase that scarcity feeling. I actually thought he could go a little bit higher. I think the when you look at like the waffles on top of it or the kind of special additions he would do, I expected it to be closer to even like 25, 30. Mm-hmm. But also it made me ask the question, like, what does his inventory look like? Does he go through? What's oh, in his garage? Does, you, yeah. does the banana bread sell out? And I think that's the crazy part about drop marketing is that a lot of times you do really sell out and that's the whole point. It's now or never and you got to do it now. Scarcity marketing always works, but it works particularly well when you have a product that you can sell at a low price point so that you can do it over and over and over and over and over 
over again. And that's one of the things that I think is really brilliant about his business model. Yeah. One of the interesting things that the Sharks called out around Mark, you know, being an entrepreneur and having kind of that cash up front, they kept saying it's a mistake to take an investment at this point. And I was very curious to hear from both of you because initially to me, it seemed like it's a very small kind of like pull up by the bootstraps type operations and business that he's running. That's probably how he can achieve lower selling points and not having to think about the logistic component of it. I'm curious to kind of see what your guys' thoughts were specifically around should Mark have taken investment at this point in time, or do we feel like he was seeing enough success? Yeah, he didn't need the money. So, you know, you really only want to take an investment if, number one, you need the capital to spend on something, things you might need to spend on. I need to build out a big production facility. I need to build a sales team. I need to hire a bunch of marketers. All things that he didn't really need to do. Like he needed a warehouse and at like 75% gross margins and really no sales and marketing expenses and very low cogs. I don't think he needed to do. I think he could get a lease in a warehouse with the cash that he already has in hand. So I don't think he needed the money. And so that's one reason I think the Sharks were not that interested in the deal. So as far as offers came, we had Kevin come in first offering the 150K that Mark was asking for, for 30%. So three times the amount of equity than what he originally asked for coming in. And then we had Damon that came in at 25%. I felt like this pitch in particular, they took more of like, you're a young entrepreneur. You have time to focus on other things. Maybe you should focus on school. So it seemed like they were very keen on that strategic partnership angle. I think he asked for actually a very fair valuation of his company. He basically this year has about like $300,000 in profit. Mm -hmm. So if you just did like a 5x multiple on that, that gets you to a $1.5 million valuation, which is basically exactly what he asked for. So, you know, when Mr. Wonderful is like, oh, I want a 30% equity stake, it really cuts his valuation down a whole bunch. And I don't think that's a fair deal for the entrepreneur. My question is too, is like, what specifically is he going to help Mark with? Like, what is it that he has? Because in my mind, I'm like, do you even need to be in stores? This doesn't feel like something it needs to be in stores. Like he's proven that he can do online and keep those costs really low. So it was such an interesting like pairing at the end. Yeah. You would have to believe that his slime brand is so good and so well known. And at this point, I can barely remember the name of it. Slimy honey. You'd have to believe that the brand that he's built online is the differentiator for the company. And that if you go into retail, seeing that brand would get people to buy it. Like you're investing in this entirely because of his business model and his social media prowess. And that's it, right? I don't know. I felt like the drop culture piece, probably Damon has a lot of experience with that from like the fashion side of things. So maybe he saw that as like a lucrative, like, oh, hey, I can apply my streetwear smarts to slime. At the end of the day, Mark took the deal with Damon for 25% at 150K in capital. So John, after going through the margins, would you reconsider (laughs) investing in Slimy Honey? Listen, I think Damon is going to make money. This is a cash flow business and he's got great (laughs) margins. And so there's like immediate return available to the investor. I'm still not investing. Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) John just pulled a classic Barbara for all these amazing reasons. I'm out. (laughs) I'm out on the category. I'm out on slime. Yeah. Okay. I would definitely be in. I love it. I think, too, the story is just so compelling. Mark just, like, had my heart from the beginning. Mm -hmm. What is a slime smell? 
that you would be embarrassed to say that you would buy? The one that I would buy that I think is super embarrassing is gasoline. <laughs> oh my God, I knew someone would say that. <laughs> I love the smell of gas. I was thinking, I mean, not so embarrassing, but like if there was a Nutella, if they ever did a partnership with the Nutella brand, I love the smell of it. And I feel like my hands would smell like cocoa butter all the time. <laughs> um, so I would use it for dual purpose. Yes, I love the partnerships idea. Always coming up with good marketing tactics here. Okay, I think the most like classic one is Sharpies. I love the way Sharpies smell. I had on my list book smell, the smell of like fresh pages. If you could find a way to figure that out. I had grass clippings on my list. Yeah. And Mm. then pickled ginger. I love pickled ginger. I think a pickled ginger slime would crush. I think it would do so well. Yeah. I think it would too. Mark, if you hear me again, please just give me a shout out. Yeah. By the way, I think the biggest business lesson from Slimy Honey is that it's not that difficult to get going on physical product selling in today's world. Basically, the actual access to physical products, I think because the internet has largely been commoditized, the access to that stuff, it's not the blocker anymore. It used to be. Now it's literally, can you come up with a compelling distribution strategy to get it out on social, to get people interested? And can you find the right product format fit, if you will, between the product you want to sell and the channels that you can distribute it on? I mean, again, TikTok just seems to kind of be the dominating for businesses, for both organic and for paid means to really get out there and find their audience, especially for the Gen Z generation of Play-Doh. Is Dave Matthews banned on TikTok? I should look. (laughs) So next up in the tank is Reviver, which is a groundbreaking invention for instant and on-the-go clothing freshness to keep you fresh between washes. That's also reusable. We have brother duo Ben and Eric Kusin. This is from season six, episode four. They're asking 150K for a 5% stake, which comes out to a 3 million valuation. They come from a family of successful entrepreneurs, which we will get into as we go into the numbers. But any initial thoughts when it came to having an on-a-go breath mint for your shirt, which I thought was a very cute quote to describe their product and should have been more prominent in their messaging and packaging. I feel like anything where some Nepo babies are pitching you on not cleaning yourself properly is a bad thing to invest in. (laughs) Right from the start, I was just really turned off by the product. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because it's like something that I could see being really helpful if I just had on me. I don't really know that I would seek it out. This is my exact point, Leslie. So it's born out of a need that most people don't actually have. Okay. Just because this guy Mm. was really nervous before a meeting, it was ripping butts in the parking lot. It was like, oh God, I'm going to lose this (laughs) deal because I smell like cigarettes. Like doesn't mean that most people actually have a need for this. I just don't actually believe most of us have a need. And if they do have a need, I think they're actually just going to use Febreze, which is just a well-known odor eliminating spray that's already on the market. Hmm. I don't know. I love fast food. And I think the demonstration that they did in the beginning of this shirt literally soaked in a bag of fried foods. How many times when we used to like go back into the office, have you all like went out for either team lunches or you're like, oh, I'm worried about like this sandwich that I'm eating. Like, I actually feel like it's a really common thing, especially in workplaces where everyone's going into the office to want to be your most fresh version of yourself. Or maybe I'm the outlier here. I don't know. It's just very 
low on my hygiene list. I think thinking about my clothes is just uh, so far off. I feel like, though, the the kicker there for me is like fajita night. Fajita night, you can't hide mm. that you went to fajita night. So that would be a great one to have a reviver swipe after fajita night. If you came in after fajita night, people would be like, hey, <laughs> you have fajitas? Oh my gosh, this deal is done. Shake on it. I was going to use another analogy. Coming up from a very traditional Indian family, I will say like spices stick on your clothes no matter how much you wash them. So can definitely see kind of a use case for like the food point or fajita night to really make sure that you are the most precious. But going into some of their numbers, I think one of the biggest things that was called out is that they had a family investor who spent $2 million that was later uncovered to be their father, who was later <laughs> uncovered to be the founder of GameStop. No big deal. Like, just, just take a minute to just process. I could see why they didn't want to name drop at first. I was actually really impressed, despite being Nepo babies, that they didn't just go in and say, we're working with Walmart. Our dad's the founder of GameStop. It was after a little bit of some poking and prodding from the sharks, but they did 500,000 in sales in under 10 months. It's 55 cents per unit and sell for $3. It's very reminiscent to me of like the mattress industry where you have very cheap supplies, but you can sell it at like jacked up prices. But what's interesting, and I think the sharks caught on to this, was they were projecting 4 million in sales after only doing 500K within their first year. Yeah. Because they started in, was it the pet store? Yeah, Petco. They got some deal with Petco, but they were barely selling at volume in Petco. Who knows how they got that deal, mm -hmm. by the way? Right. Who knows if their father's super tight with someone in leadership at Petco or whatever. They didn't reveal that detail, but it did cross my mind as like, maybe they just networked their mm -hmm. way in through their family connections there. They just had a major, major issue. Like, even if I liked this product, which I don't, the <laughs> fact that they want a $3 million valuation on $500,000 in sales is just ridiculous. Like, it, there's no world where this product justifies that sort of forward revenue valuation in any dimension of the world. And as they got pushed on it, the reaction of the entrepreneurs just really turned me off. Like really huge, like negative faces they were making, a whole bunch of things like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting thinking about kind of the push with the like, I don't fund rich kids and the whole Nepo baby conversation mm -hmm. we've been having. Doing some digging, I actually found the founders like replies to some of these comments on Reddit, like directly from the founders. And they were actually talking about how they felt like that conversation had been a little bit construed and edited up on the show. Mm. And that's always something I try to remind myself on this show. Like they're trying to get viewers. They're trying to make this dramatic. And they had even said like they think that Barbara kind of hurt them out after the fact and had seen sort of the work that they had done. And I think it's interesting because yes, we can call people Nepo babies. We can do this, whatever. But I don't know. There's obviously a leg up, right? Like you're in mm. a higher position by who you know. And I don't know. I think I'm just kind of curious to talk about that a little bit because it's like if whether it's you're using a Nepo baby for your marketing, they're an influencer or something like that. Like, I don't think they should just be like fully discredited. I think they should go through the same level of questioning and understanding and like, are they a target market fit? Mm -hmm. But is there a world where you feel like this works or like how should marketers and business people think about these partnerships maybe with people who are already in a position of privilege and power? This just straight up depends if the Nepo babies are any good at what they do. Like <laughs> nobody has problems with Nepo babies who are actually talented at the thing they want to do. People just have issues with Nepo babies who are not actually talented at the thing. And that's the thing that Barbara should have mm -hmm sussed out a little bit more is does she believe in them? But I get her fundamental point, which is I'm going to give you $150,000. And what I want you to think 
is I have no choice but to get a return for Barbara on this investment. Mm -hmm. Because if these two guys, if their business doesn't succeed, they literally have no risk. Mm -hmm. They're still going to have their house. They're going to have their cars. They're still going to have all these things. And so, yes, they may want it. They may want to succeed on their own, but they don't need to succeed. And so, like, it just changes the risk calculation for Barbara. She's like, I'm giving money to people who Mm -hmm. don't really need it and aren't going to work as hard for it, most likely. I also think the one thing that really stood out in their pitch as well is they kept referring to their product as technology. Everyone's eyes glow up at investing at technology, which I think the sharks really caught on to that really quickly of like, okay, maybe you don't actually know what you're doing. Maybe you're not as fully invested in this business as like you're giving off vibe wise. Yeah, this pitch was a good candidate if we had a segment called Mark Calls BS. (laughs) Like, I love when he gets (laughs) fired. He's like, no, that's so stupid. It's not a technology. You just said that to make your dad happy. (laughs) That's exactly how he said it, too. I love the billionaire calling out some other rich guys about how they're positioning their product. (laughs) Yeah. The positioning as technology is really interesting. I mean, they did talk about Febreze as a competitor and there was so much research that went into Febreze. Yeah. Play to Win, the strategy book where they go through PNG and there was so much science and technology used in it. I think they'd be up against that too in reaching an audience as educating people that they need this and convincing them that it's enough of a problem to buy the product. And you do not want to get into a land war with Procter and Gamble on brand marketing to establish brand dominance. <laughs> yeah, like buy, you're out. You know, I think that's a real problem for them. So do we still think that Reviver is still a company? Maybe it got propped up by you know family money or something, but I doubt it. I don't think there's product market fit. I don't think there's a need. Yeah, I felt for me, it was kind of all over the place. I think maybe I wish they had focused a little bit more and really been a little bit more clear on like who the product was for, what it did versus kind of trying to touch a bunch of touch points. I Mm -hmm. think no. And we know as they ended off, they last ended their segment with a deal made with Lori for 150K for 15%. So you are correct. The freshness revolution came to an unfortunate halt. As of 2023, their website is no longer active. So no digital presence at all. The company ended up earning about $5 million per year since appearing on the show. So the show definitely gave it a bit of a boost. And Ben and Lori both exited the company in 2019. Uh, and nowadays, the brothers are venturing into their own business ventures. <laughs> Rip Reviver and stay fresh to death. I did think, by the way, <laughs> that it was ironic that it was founded by someone related to the company GameStop because I do think all the guys on Wall Street bets that were driving up the price of GameStop probably need this product more than anybody else. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about the co-marketing opportunities. Get the latest Call of Duty and a Reviver pack for the next year. Your roommates will love you and your mom when you live in the basement of your mom's house. But I can say that. I'm a gamer, so I can say that. I feel like it's okay. Last up on the tank, we have Phone Soap. 
Phone Soap is a charger that doesn't use soap. It uses UV light to kill all the bacteria on your phone in just five minutes. So it's dual purpose. It has both charger and cleaning functionality. It was presented in season six, which is back in 2015 by Dan Barnes and Wes Laporte, another family duo. They were asking for $300,000 for 7.5% equity, which comes out to a $4 million valuation. Their biggest claim is that they claim to kill 99.9% of all bacteria. I just want to come out and say, I hate the name. Phone soap, I feel, is very misleading. It's not It's soap. not what I expected it. Yeah, it's not soap. Where's the soap? It's misleading. So many opportunities to rebrand <laughs> and to change the yeah, name. Yeah, at first I thought this was going to be like a handy kind of, we were going for the wipe theme yeah. this segment, but agree that the brand name was <laughs> a bit confusing and like, you know, just reminding the audience, this was 2015, this was pre-COVID. So mm-hmm. take that into all of our discussion about this product. To bet on this product back in 2015, you would have had to believe that as a society, we would have become obsessed with stopping the spread of germs, that there was some sort of like illness on such a, a global <laughs> level that we change everything about our lives, including how we charged our phones <laughs> to stop the spread of germs. I just can't imagine making that bet back in 2015. Right. That's the thing is like, we are such creatures of habit. And like, mm. there was this whole period of our lives where we completely changed our habits. And, you know, like two year look back, three years now, we're in 2023. <laughs> the habits just go back to how they were. And Mm -hmm. the whole education component and the convincing and the fear-based marketing that has to happen here to basically convince people that their phone's a cesspool. And I think the thing is people know their phones are a cesspool, but we're not doing Mm -hmm. anything about it. And just like the average consumer, even in the world today... Nobody cares. Nobody cares that their phone's (laughs) dirty. They just want to keep scrolling. Right. Or you're like me and you sleep with your phone in bed with you, which is never a good thing. I'm like, it's been with me everywhere. My dirty confession. (laughs) I will say the stats that scared me a good bit, but not enough to try this, but enough to use a Clorox wipe a little bit more was the 18 times more bacteria and the one in six having fecal matter. I was like, okay. (laughs) Well, when we go into the numbers, so they were only in business for about half a year at the time that the episode was recorded. So they made about 530 $7,000 in sales. They sold for $60, which I thought was a really interesting price point. Definitely. It's yeah. It's really high. Definitely higher than what I would actually pay for a charger slash cleaner yeah. <laughs> combo. But it cost $20 to make. They spent 80 k on marketing and they actually gave away 60% of their company to a previous investor where they raised 800 k This is really interesting. Curious to know both of your guys' thoughts, specifically with that much equity given away for so little that they raised. The more equity you give up, the less upside there is for the founder is the truth. And you want founders to have really good upside and you want them to believe enough in their product that they fight to keep their equity because it is their one chance to be super successful financially. And so seeing how much they gave up was definitely a flag. Like the issues that I saw, I hate the name, it's not soap. They gave up 60% of the company and they're about to give up a whole bunch more. Like, really? That's going to leave them with like mm-hmm. 15 to 20% of their company. The upside is just not there. It's going to be super expensive mm-hmm. to market it and to convince people to buy it because it costs $60. And because it's a big educational sale, you've got to convince people their phones are dirty, convince them they should buy this new thing that's super bulky and looks like a coffin and put it on their bureau. And then- <laughs> It's just like not re- you're up against laziness and people just don't see the problem. So I think I think they've got a lot of structural issues facing them as entrepreneurs here. 
The conversation around hospitals and places that are perceived Mm -hmm. as really, really clean and how if they were to continue, how to really make that a part of the habit in those places. And it got me thinking about maybe some of the alternative markets. We love talking about that. But I was starting to think about spas, beauty salons, Mm -hmm. yoga studios, maybe nail salons where you likely can't use your phone anyways. And so if there was a way where it was... I don't know, you either pay to clean your phone or you just Leave it you in walk there. into the spa and there's like a, hey, set your phone down. Like, this is a place to relax. Like, there could be some really targeted sales at some of mm-hmm. those spaces that are perceived as clean. I don't know if they're all as clean as we want to think. Yeah. What spa is going to, like, add $60 per locker worth of equipment so that people can, like, UV clean their phone? It's just not, like, a core part of the experience. Equinox. No one's going to choose their spa because of that. They're going to be like, whatever. I thought it was an interesting push, too, to go to more of, like, the industry side as opposed to yeah. direct-to-consumer. So I could see it in, like, amusement parks, for example. You're going on your ride. You stuff your stuff inside a locker, you're touching the seats and the belts that everyone else has touched, or even at like airports, when you're like waiting, you could just charge someone $2 to like charge your phone and like leave it locked in a little space while you go grab a bite to eat or wait in line or try to figure out your connecting flight. So I do see the use case. I think it would be interesting if this product did come out in 2020 when hand sanitizer was scarce. It would have sold a lot during the pandemic. People would have bought it because they were scared. So that fundamentally just changes the motivator, Mm -hmm. right? This is going to market at a time where that is not the case. And so you really need to convince people that this is a problem. And that's what the pandemic did. It convinced people that Mm -hmm. cleanliness of this sort of stuff was a problem and germs were a real problem. Let me just ask you, Ariel, like clever idea. Let's just say you're at the airport, you're waiting for your flight, you want to go get food. Is there any world where you are going to leave your phone plugged in somewhere while you go to the taco stand? Like what? uh, I don't know why it's coming to mind, but like those Japanese like capsule beds, like hotels that you can stay in. Like if you have it in a locked place that only opens up with like a code or when you're there to like verify it, I I would try it out. I've seen like private phone booths at airports and stuff where you need to take important business calls. Like I would try it. I don't think I'd be ambassador. So that's what was interesting about the hospital is there is a high willingness to pay at a hospital because you have to keep things clean. And so that could work. I do think the debate about is this a consumer product or a commercial product is an interesting discussion. The challenge going commercial, of course, is it just like narrows the market so, so, so much. And so what you have to do as the entrepreneur is you have to say, well, how much can I raise the price? Because in a commercial sale, you can raise the price because businesses are willing to pay more than consumers. And how big is the particular vertical and how specialized do I need to be? And how much cost does it add to actually sell into that vertical? Like I happen to love horizontal markets because horizontal markets are just massively, massively big. And it simplifies everything about your sales process, your education process, all this stuff. There's a lot of vertical market businesses that are being successful, but they are more narrow and they take more specialized education and can have longer sales cycles and a whole bunch of things like that. Yeah. And I think the sharks kind of caught on to that too, of saying, hey, this is more of a little bit of a niche product. The founders were like, yeah, we're really targeting our audience, very specific audience that we're reaching out to. To the point that Kevin, his first offer, I thought was also really interesting. He was asking for $6 in royalty for 300K, and then he would drop to $3 until 1.2 million was made. And I actually feel like this deal from a royalty perspective isn't too far-fetched given kind of the concerns about the total addressable market, how niche the product is, whether or not it's going to be focused more on consumer versus industrial. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. 
in theory, it's not too much of a royalty. We see a lot of these royalty deals where you're like, oh my gosh, that like takes your earnings to zero. I think the challenge is that the royalty, a $6 royalty is basically going to come like literally right off the net margin. It's basically going to leave even less money available to the entrepreneurs. And so you add this royalty in and it's already, they're giving away 60% of whatever they decide to pay out to shareholders. So basically their gross margin is $40. So $6 is like 15% right off. It's pretty decent. And, you know, I don't know what they're going to need to spend on marketing, but I think they're going to need a lot to spend on marketing because it's highly educational. It's high price point, et cetera. It's actually interesting. This is maybe one that we wouldn't expect to be activating on social as much, but they have a very large social following, 320,000 on TikTok, Hmm. 64,000 on Instagram. And what I love- That's pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) John's like not allowed to believe that this will work. Yeah. (laughs) But I agree. I think the pandemic probably really helped them, but- Mm -hmm. They're aware. They know that a strategy needs to be really educating and showing. They have a whole series on their reels and I think on TikTok too about how germy is it, which is, I love it. I love these creative things. That is cool. People would like to watch that. Yeah, that's fun. So one of the ones that I watched is they took a Petri dish directly under, I think it was an airport hand air dryer, like what you dry your hands with. And so they let it sit and then show you the germs in the Petri dish. And it's just horrifying. It's fun, (laughs) fear-based marketing. And yet they have 300,000 followers who want to watch those Petri dishes grow and who are not going to buy a phone soap at 60 bucks. (laughs) It's like the WebMD crowd. They'll just sit there and keep watching and watching. So all these views are growing, but they're not having any sales. And so it's like, how do you convince somebody maybe in the bathroom? They talk about being a commode communicator. And I don't know if you're not, I feel like you're probably lying, but I would like that if just like in the bathroom, throw it in there. Maybe that would be like a visual signal to clean my phone. As I'm washing my hands, it's like, wash your hands, clean your phone, wash your hands, clean your phone. And I think Mark kind of caught on to that too, because it takes five minutes, right? That's a pretty sizable amount of time without your phone, especially going back to the bathroom example. Who knows what's going to (laughs) happen in five minutes on the internet? (laughs) True. I mean, nowadays, yes, that's very true. A lot can happen in five minutes. Uh, But Mark kind of got at that too. So he came in, he said, I'll give you 300K for 20%, but with the contingency that this product can deliver a unit that sanitizes in under 30 seconds for a slightly higher cost at $12, which I thought, you know, interesting point kind of around, you know, what are the value props that are really associated with this of educating folks around the fear, but also the speed and time was an interesting consideration factor. And I think if you could produce a product that takes the time for you to wash your hands and you sing happy birthday, but also cleans your phone, Mm -hmm. then that's great. But the five minute duration, really long. Too long. Yeah. Lori came in too. She was interested, which I was surprised by, uh, for 300K for 15%, which I did not see this within her wheelhouse or see this really performing too well on a QBC. I don't know. But as we know, our founders make a deal with Lori after she goes down to 10%. So now for our favorite segment, Leslie, John, do we think that the phone soap is still a company? I don't know. I feel like just knowing what we we globally went through as a human population and knowing that everybody was panicking about germs for two and a half years, I think they're still doing well. Yeah. Yeah. I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I bet they'd be out of business, but I bet the pandemic spiked them. And hey, you know, good for them. I know they didn't make as much as they could have because they gave away so much of their company, but I hope it was good for them. (laughs) 
So here's the thing. One year after the episode aired, they made over $9 million in sales. So not only is Phone Soap still a business, their sales have gone up and so has their inventory. So they've expanded beyond just the Phone Soap to portable phone chargers, bigger sanitizers for more electronics, which more bulky, I guess, against Barbara's advice, even to air purifiers. They are bringing the sanitation nationwide with coverage in 1,500 retail stores in the country. They're raking in the dough at $13.5 million in annual sales. So they keep spreading the love and not the germs. I think we just maybe need to figure out how we bring back mm. Reviver and do like a Reviver <laughs> phone soap collab because the alcohol wipes are apparently not good for phones, which I didn't oh. know. But maybe Ooh. if we like revive Reviver, get some like easy technological Same. wipe that you can use, it could be like take a bath and then dry off with a Reviver wipe. Phone Reviver. Whoa. Just put the two names together. You charge your, pack your phone, phone in reviver, it. Where you get antibacterial slime. <laughs> That you put on the phone, yes. And you get the scent, like a Febreze-scented slime. Wow. Look at us. Today's episode is written and produced by Matthew Brown. If you like what you hear, even if you don't like what you hear, follow and subscribe to the show. But smashing that subscribe or follow button is really the most helpful thing a beautiful person like yourself can do for the show. Or send us free products. I mean, that's great. Also love a free trinket. Okay, we'll see you in the tank next week for another bite.